Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, please open up to Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Have you ever felt discouraged while trying to serve the Lord? Maybe you, you want to serve the Lord in a certain way, but doors of opportunity just keep closing on you. That can be discouraging. Or maybe you are, uh, you're serving with other Christians and your team just isn't getting along. That can be discouraging. Or maybe you're, you're praying for somebody and you're telling them about Jesus or you, you keep inviting somebody to church and you just don't seem to be getting anywhere with them. That can be very discouraging. Or maybe you're serving the Lord faithfully in youth ministry or kids ministry or just discipling somebody and, and you just do not see any fruit of your labors. And you think to yourself, why am I busting my rear? <laughs> why, why am I doing this? When there's no fruit, I feel unappreciated and unwanted. That can be very discouraging. One of the weapons that Satan uses to attack God's people is discouragement. Satan wants to discourage Christians so that we will doubt that God is present with us, that God is for us, that he is working through us. Satan wants Christians to be discouraged about the lack of progress they are making and becoming like Jesus. Satan wants us to doubt the truth of God's word. He wants us to give up on following Jesus altogether. He wants us to stop making disciples. Satan wants us to give up on the church he wants us to be quiet. He wants us to stop talking about Jesus. Satan wants us to stop living life together as God's people. He, uh, he wants us to be isolated so that we are in very little, if any at all, encouraging fellowship with one another. Satan does not want the kingdom of Jesus to, advanced, to be advanced in your life and he does not want the kingdom of Jesus to be advanced through your life, in your home and in your neighborhood and on your sports teams and in your school and at work. Whether things are going well for you right now or whether things are not going well for you, Satan wants to discourage you if you are a follower of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul understood what it felt like to be discouraged in ministry. To follow Jesus, Paul had given up so much. He had given up his home, He'd given up his family, he'd given up his friends, he gave up all his traditions, he gave up his career, he gave up his reputation. And even though Paul saw great fruitfulness in his ministry at times, he was also frequently hated, frequently mocked, frequently physically attacked by non-Christians. Paul's character had been doubted, his own sanity had been questioned, he was hunted down by violent mobs. He'd been arrested numerous times. He was interrogated in courts of law. He had been beaten with stones, beaten with rods, chased out of town. He'd lost good friends. He didn't have much money, and he was physically and mentally exhausted. 
This was Paul's condition when he arrived in the huge city of Corinth, Greece. In the first century, Corinth was a massive, bustling, thriving city with about 750,000 citizens. It was the New York City of the ancient world. And Corinth was, it, it had a thriving economy, had lots of diversity, and it had rampant immorality. The citizens of Corinth were known to be so sexually immoral throughout the entire Roman Empire that people would call somebody a Corinthian to insult them. And that's saying a lot, if you know, know anything about the Roman Empire. For one city to, your, your city is, is, is the use of, as an insult around the empire. You're a Corinthian. And Paul here, as he enters this city, the city of the Corinthians, and he's looking around at all of its idols, all of its wealth, all of its thousands and thousands of prostitutes and sexual promiscuity everywhere. What do you think he was thinking? Was, was he chomping at the bit, you think, to start gospel ministry in another city where uh, he might be arrested and beaten? Was he still confident that the gospel of Jesus could transform people in, in this city, in a city as wicked as Corinth? Well, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives us some insight into how he was feeling when he arrived in this city. He writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know, not, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul says here, when he came to Corinth, he was weak, he was fearful, he was trembling. Have you ever felt that way while serving the Lord? Paul says that as weak as he was, though, he did not doubt the power of the gospel to change people's lives. In fact, he says that he knew nothing. He resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And God used Paul's weakness for good because it showed the Corinthians that the power of his gospel ministry was not because of him, but because God was at work. And as a result, the people would not put their trust in Paul. They'd put their trust in the Jesus that Paul preached. And so at the same time, Paul was discouraged and encouraged in ministry. And, and by the end of his time in Corinth, Paul would be reminded that wherever God guides you, he will provide for you. Wherever God guides, he provides Let's read Acts 18, 1 to 4. Open your Bible with me, please. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So when Paul entered Corinth, he was alone. 
He, his ministry partner, Silas and Timothy, they were still on their way from Macedonia to meet him. And so the Lord provides encouragement to Paul right off the bat with some new friends, Aquila and Priscilla. And they were racially Jewish like Paul. And they were probably new Christians or quickly became Christians after meeting Paul. And like Paul, they were tent makers, which also means leather workers. They, they likely worked with goat leather to make tents and curtains and clothes. And Aquila and Priscilla invited Paul to work for them, to stay at their house, and he took them up on it. And verse 4 says that on the Jewish Sabbath days, which would be on our Saturday, Paul went to the synagogue to tell the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks there about Jesus. And as in previous cities, uh, Paul did not merely preach the gospel to the audience, but he also reasoned with them, it says. He, uh, he tried to persuade them from their own scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and for us, this is another reminder again that when we're talking with people about spiritual things, we need to both speak and listen. There's certainly a time for preaching the gospel, but there's also a time for having discussions about God. That's a good thing. And in a very practical way, this means that when we're talking to non-believers, um, we, we don't have to tell them about Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected in the first 30 seconds. If that, if that doesn't happen, that's okay. Instead, maybe we just ask them, did, did you grow up going to church? And then we listen. And we see where the conversation goes. And, and just like we saw Paul do in Athens last week, as we dialogue with them, we, we learn about them. And, we, and maybe we find points of common ground with them. And, and maybe we find points of difference with them. And, but hopefully we will get around to explaining why our hope, your hope, my hope, is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Then the next encouraging thing that happens to Paul here is in verse 5. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul would have been, he would have been greatly encouraged to be reunited with Silas and Timothy. They've been through a lot together. And, and just being together again, you know, with old friends would likely fill them with a new energy to go tell the Corinthians about Christ. And also Paul was encouraged because Silas and Timothy brought money for Paul from the church up in the region of Macedonia. Paul later writes to the Corinthians, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anybody, anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So churches like the Philippian church, which ironically we learned was one of the poorest churches was one of the most generous and encouraging churches to Paul. And they collected offerings like we do every Sunday to support Paul, to spread the, the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And because of their generosity, Paul was then able to more fully devote himself to ministry in this metropolis of Corinth. That's probably why verse 5 says that Paul was occupied. He was engrossed with the gospel, the work of the, the gospel, as he was testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. He was devoting most of his time now to gospel ministry. 
And so between finding Aquila and Priscilla and reuniting with Silas and Timothy and receiving financial help for ministry, it would seem that Paul was greatly encouraged about being in Corinth. But as we often see in Acts and in life, when God does something great to advance his kingdom on earth, Satan punches back. As Paul devoted himself to preaching Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected to the Jews in Corinth, look what verse 6 says. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So overall, the, the, the Corinthian Jews were not open-minded or glad to hear about Jesus' death and resurrection. No, they opposed Paul, it says, as he tried to reason with them about Jesus. It says that they reviled Paul. That means they loathed him. They detested him and his message. And Paul basically came to the end of his rope. He was tired of their opposition. He was tired of being attacked. He was tired of being slandered. And so he told them, your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And as he was saying this, he physically shook out his garments, which visually symbolized God's judgment on them for rejecting the gospel. And this is what Paul did earlier in Pisidian Antioch. He, he preached the gospel first to the Jews, but when they repeatedly rejected him and reviled him, he left the, the Jews and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And his decision here in Corinth to leave the Jews and to go preach the gospel to sexually immoral Gentiles would have deeply offended the Jews. It, it was blasphemous to them that Paul would go to Gentiles and tell them that because of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection, they could be forgiven by the Lord of all their immorality and all their wickedness and join God's family and receive eternal life. That's exactly what Paul preached, though. He said, put your faith in Jesus and you will be saved. And so verses 7 to 8 say, and... He, Paul, left there, the synagogue, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So as quickly as Paul was discouraged about his ministry to the Jews, the Lord provided a place next door, literally, where he could share the gospel. And this man named Titius Justice lived next door to the synagogue, and he welcomed Paul into his house. He was probably a brand new Christian, or he would soon be one. And as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, one of the trademarks of a follower of Jesus is showing hospitality to others for the glory of God and his mission. And as Paul shares the gospel to those people in Titius Justice's house, look at who becomes a Christian. Crispus, the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. Okay, so even though the majority of the Jews at the synagogue he just left hated Paul, rejected Paul, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, walks next door to hear about this Jesus, and Crispus believed. He, he believed that he needed to be forgiven 
of his sins against God and against other people. He believed that Jesus really is the Messiah who can reconcile us with God. Crispus trusted in Jesus Christ, and it says, so did everybody in his house. And then in addition to them, verse 8 says that many of those immoral Corinthians heard Paul preach the gospel, and they believed in Jesus too. And immediately, they were what? Baptized. And if you, this is a cool little fact. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that Paul mentions Crispus by name as one of the people he baptized on that day. And the, these new Christians were not baptized in order for Jesus to save them. They were baptized to signify that they had just been saved by Jesus when they trusted in him. It's through faith alone that Jesus saves a person. It's not through baptism. It's not through the Lord's Supper. It's not through any of our religious or good works. It's through faith alone in Jesus because he did all the work for us in his death and resurrection. And if you have trusted in Jesus, Jesus commands you to be baptized too. In Matthew 28, 19 to 20, the very first thing Jesus commands his church to do with new Christians is to baptize them. And baptism is certainly a depiction. And we've talked about baptism a lot in Acts, right? But I want to talk about it from a different angle here. Baptism is certainly a depiction of Jesus washing away our sins in his death and raising us to new life in his resurrection. But also, baptism is a clear line in the sand that a person draws that he or she is a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, just... Put yourself in Crispus' shoes here and think about how radical of a decision it was for him to trust in Jesus and to be baptized. Think about how appealing it must have been for Crispus to trust in Jesus but then not to be baptized because that had a lot of social repercussions for him. Right? Yeah, yeah, Crispus was gaining Christ. He was gaining salvation. He was gaining this new family of Christians who had some Gentiles in it, and that was kind of weird and new. He, he was gaining all of these things, but it came at a great cost to him. By trusting Christ and being baptized, he would lose his position. He would immediately, right? He would lose his reputation as the leader of the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. Crispus was losing much, if not all, um, of his Jewish friends, his family, who would now ostracize him. Now, thankfully, we read that his immediate family, at least, trusted in Jesus. And yeah, he would keep aspects of his Jewishness, but at the same time, he was saying goodbye to a lot, to all of the Jewish traditions and rules and holidays that had been so closely tied with his family and with the community he'd been part of. He, he would now um, have serious social, financial, and professional repercussions because of this decision. And for many of you, following Jesus has cost you socially and financially and professionally. Many of you, I know, grew up in families in which your ethnicity or your traditions were closely tied with your religion. And many of you, I know this, many of you used to be Roman Catholic 
And for you, trusting in Jesus alone, praying to Jesus alone, relying on Jesus' finished work alone for your salvation, led you to be ridiculed and condemned by friends and family. And some of you come from families with a more atheistic bent, and it has caused turmoil in your marriages and in your families and with your friends. It has made holidays much more difficult because now you believe in a God that you were always told didn't exist, and your family thinks you're crazy. And, and several of you came out of religions that told you something very different about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And following Jesus has caused you to be mocked and to lose close relationships. And for you, you understand to some degree what it meant for Crispus to draw a line in the sand and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You understand, understand what that baptism meant. You know, in some religions like Islam, the repercussions for trusting in Jesus can be deadly. At the pastor's conference I went to last month, a speaker said, if you're gonna preach the gospel to Muslims, you better be willing to let them stay in your spare bedroom. It's true. And we should be willing to do that. Because following Jesus will cause us much temporary discomfort and stress, but the consistent message of God is that Jesus is worth it. In reality, he says this, you're not sacrificing anything by giving up the world to follow Jesus. In reality, you are simply making a very good trade. You're trading temporary pleasures that cannot ever satisfy your soul for eternal pleasures in Christ who will satisfy your soul now and forever. That's the trade you're making. And that's why in Philippians 3, 7 to 11, Paul writes, but whatever gain I had before I knew Jesus, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which I found when I went to England is the name for trash, and it's kind of a fun word to say. Um, but rubbish means trash. And actually, to be honest, in the Greek word is very, uh, basically, it's, uh, it's a bad word Paul uses here. But he's saying it's refuse. It's the trash that trash creates. It's I count all things trash compared to knowing Jesus. And then he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on what? Faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he doesn't mean attain as in work for, he means that that might be mine through faith. So however much encouragement Paul had received thus far in Corinth, it appears he was still feeling discouraged. Um, he was tired of being attacked. He was physically exhausted. He was certainly tempted to quit. But then the Lord met him again in his weakness and encouraged him to keep going. Look with me at Acts 18, 9 to 10. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, 
do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What a sweet thing the Lord did for Paul there by giving him that vision in the night. And wouldn't it be nice if the Lord did this all the time? (laughs) He meets Paul in his weakness and he gives him three commands. God tells Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And obviously God told Paul these things because Paul was being tempted to do the opposite. He was tempted to be afraid. He was tempted to stop speaking. He was tempted to be silent because silent Christians are inoffensive Christians. And if Christians are silent, then nobody will hear about Jesus and subsequently be offended by Jesus or be saved by Jesus. And then God gives Paul three reasons to obey his commands. God tells Paul, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And if you put these three reasons next to the three promises God gives, you'll see that they correspond to each other. First, God tells Paul, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And throughout the entire Bible, the main reason God gives his people not to be afraid is that he is with us. God is reminding Paul that he will never leave him, he will not forsake him, He's reminding Paul that Jesus is such more, uh, he's so much more important, so much more powerful than mere humans. So do not be afraid of humans. And just like Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. A second, God tells Paul, go on speaking, for no one will attack you to harm you. And this was a specific promise for Paul regarding his ministry in Corinth. It's not a universal promise for all Christians. Jesus told us that we should expect to be persecuted for following him. And we know that many Christians have been attacked and tortured and killed for following Jesus, obviously. Here, Jesus is promising Paul that in Corinth, no physical harm will come to him. And third, God tells Paul, do not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. God assures Paul that Paul's gospel preaching in Corinth is not near finished because God has many in Corinth who are his people. God does not say, do not be silent, for there will be many in this city who will be my people. God says, do not be silent, for I have many people in this city who are my people. And so these are people who have not yet heard the gospel, but who are already God's people. And when Paul preaches the gospel to them, they will respond by trusting in Jesus. This is why Paul must not be silent, because God has many people who will hear the gospel and be saved. Well, what an encouraging reminder for us as we share the gospel that God has people whom he has foreknown with a saving affection. And these people are called God's sheep. And when they hear about Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, they will put their faith in him. 
And this reminds us of, of, of Jesus' words in John 10 when he says that God the Father already gave him his people, his church, even though he had not even yet died and risen again. This is what Jesus said in John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, past tense, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so through these promises, these three promises here that, that, that the Lord gives Paul in this vision, Paul's soul is encouraged and he perseveres in this ministry to which God has called him. And <clears throat> for you and me, in the very same way, God will encourage us when we are discouraged in life and in ministry. And the way, one of the ways he will do that is this exact same way, through the promises of his word. When you read God's promises to his people in the Bible, cling unto those because those are yours if you trust in Jesus. And, and we don't have time to read all of those, but as I was thinking, I happened to be writing this on Thursday and I had a quiet time on Thursday. I was like, I just want to share three of the promises I read on Thursday that are ours in Christ. Psalm 29, 11 says, the Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Psalm 31, 24 says, be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. God's word is living. It is active. His word is everlasting. His word is true. So even though it was written many thousands of years ago, it is just true, right, as just as true right now as when David penned it. Trust in his promises, Christians, joyfully, because they are yours because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus. Be encouraged by his word. And as a result of this encouragement that God gave Paul, look at what Acts 18.11 says. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he didn't leave. He didn't get chased out of town. He didn't quit. It says he stayed a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. And he made disciples of Jesus. And God was sustaining Paul. And he was advancing, he was advancing God's kingdom throughout the streets of Corinth, which I don't know which cities you think of, you don't have to look far to think of cities that look like a lost cause, but not to God. And then after enough time of advancing his kingdom and, God, and fruitful ministry, Satan counterpunches again. In Acts 18, 12 to 17, it says, but when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. 
But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Galileo paid no attention to any of this. So here Paul was attacked again, but he was not physically harmed. And just like God promised, he, he delivered Paul without, look at this, Paul doesn't even have to say a word. And I think, I think Luke, the writer here, says that intentionally. He's like, just as he was about ready to open his mouth, God delivered on his promise. The Roman pro- proconsul Gallio did not find Paul guilty of any crimes against the Roman Empire. And in his opinion, basically this is what he said. Paul is just espousing another form of Judaism, which the Corinthian Jews happened not to like. And even though he was wrong, that's, that, was his, that was his judgment. And what I mean wrong is Christianity is obviously not a sect of, of Judaism. But as a Roman proconsul, he wouldn't have known that. And after Galileo uh, kicked him out of the tribunal, then look what happens. The Jews seized the new ruler of the synagogue. Remember, it had been Crispus. And now it's Sosthenes. And they beat him. So God turns Satan's attack around and he uses the attackers to attack themselves. And if you think about it, it's, it's, it's amazing what God could do. It really is. You read that in the Old Testament over and over where it's like there's all these armies coming on God's people and then God, and then it's like uh, God turned them against themselves. It's like, what? Yeah, they just started attacking themselves. It's like God could do anything. He could do anything he wants, however he wants, and this is how he chose to do it that day. And according to verse 18 then, it says this. So Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth. Wow. Now, in addition to the applications we already talked about here, I want to briefly share three more. First, Jesus promised us in Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That comes after a long section of do not worry about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, so all these things will be added to you. If you're trusting in Jesus and seeking to obey him in your life according to the instruction he gives you in the word, then you can be confident that he is going to take care of all of your needs, physically, emotionally, and socially. So if you sacrifice money for Jesus, for following Jesus, he's going to give you the money you need. He's going to replace that money with money you need. If you sacrifice family and friends for following Jesus, he's going to give you a new family and new friends who are fellow followers of Jesus. If you sacrifice your reputation to do what is right in your school or at your workplace, Jesus is going to lift you up and honor you in his sight. Paul and Crispus in this passage both gave up much to sacrifice Jesus. But what they found is that Jesus was the greater treasure than anything they could have previously dreamed of having. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is a promise. Everything you need will be added to you. This is not a health and wealth prosperity gospel. It does not say everything you want will be added to you. It says God's going to take care of your greatest needs what you really need, God's gonna, he has your back. He's gonna make sure you have what you need in life and in death. Second, 
Trust in the Lord and his promises when you're discouraged in your efforts to follow him and to serve him. Trust in the Lord and his promises when you're feeling discouraged about following him, about making disciples, about serving him. Believe his promise that he is with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. Believe his promise that when his word is shared, it always accomplishes something, youth workers. That God's word never returns to him void. Just be faithful in preaching God's word. Remember that even though we have the important work of sharing the gospel and making disciples of all nations as the church, the most important work has already been completed for us. The sin atoning death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is finished. That's really good news. That is the, man, Dylan has this line he uses. I can't remember. We start the race at the finish line as Christians. It's finished. The work is finished. And so now you're starting the race knowing the victory is already won in Jesus Christ. So run hard knowing the victory is already won. I had to steal that, Dylan. I hope you weren't planning on using that in a sermon. Sorry. Third, listen to this one. No matter what sexually immoral things you have done, God offers you forgiveness, purity, and a new start in Jesus Christ. Paul preached the good news of Jesus to the Corinthians, the sexually immoral citizens of Corinth, because listen why, listen. He knew that the cleansing power of Jesus' shed blood on the cross is infinitely more powerful than the filth of our sexual sins. Whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, the Lord loves you and offers you a new life today. Turn away from your sexual sin because it is serious. That's what Jesus told the the woman at the well. Go and sin no more. He told her that. But know this, that you can turn to Jesus and he will save you. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to make you as white as snow and he says he will. Ask him to teach you through his word how he wants you to use your sexuality and he will. Many, think about this. I mean, it's hard. Many Corinthians, they must have been steeped in sexual sin. When you read historically about what they were doing and it was blended with their religion and ugly, deeply evil stuff, many of them trusted in the Lord and their lives were transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if God has done that, he will do it and he is doing it today. If you're living in sexual sin, turn to the Lord today. Ask him to change you and be baptized in Jesus' name. There's no other way you can really get rid of your guilt and your self-hate and your condemnation. And our world is, try- is looking for ways to do that, right? Right? You can numb it for a little while through all sorts of things. The only real way to do it is by knowing that Jesus took your sin. He took all of it. And he put it in his body on the cross and he killed it. And so that 
your sin is no more. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No other way to get rid of it. What a savior, what a God. Don't waste your time with false gods. Trust in Jesus and be saved, not only for eternal life, but to say, there's hope for me. I don't have to live every day thinking about my past. There's hope for me in Jesus. He loves me. I have forgiveness and purity. I'm a new creation in Christ. Nobody offers you that but God. You need the Lord. And if, if you're gonna follow him, Jesus says this. He says, if you're gonna follow me, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me. And as you do that by his power, may you find him to be more enjoyable, more satisfying than anything this world has to offer you because he is. If you dig deep enough, it takes time. You have to know the Lord. And as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trust this, that wherever God guides you, he's gonna provide for you what you need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this message. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you that, oh, just for your grace, which is your kindness shown to undeserving sinners. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to be saved. You're so kind to us. Thank you, God. We, we have messed up our lives. We have been messed up by others so much. And you, in your gospel, offer us a gospel of reconciliation with you and restoration, being made whole in you. And we, even though in this life we know we're not gonna be totally healed of everything, we know that we're also not eternally gonna be in the state we're in. God, there's a day coming where you're gonna glorify us. There won't be there won't be any more hints of sin in our life or hints of guilt that we feel about ourselves. Help us just to lean into the reality. Help us to run from the finish line right now, God. Help us to be confident and joyful and hopeful that, uh, wow, no matter what happens in our life, eternally you have taken care of all of our greatest problems. You're awesome and we love you. Thank you so much for that and just help us to live into that today. Help us to believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.